Are you interested in an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price? Well, we have got the service for you. Casper.com. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash filmcast and using promo code filmcast. That's $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash filmcast and using promo code filmcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me is... Jeff Kanata. And it's just the two of us, Jeff. We're missing yeah. Devendra Hardwar. I feel bad. Devendra was so excited about reviewing this movie. Devendra is it. the most excited of all of us to yeah. see and review X-Men Apocalypse. But unfortunately, he is in transit, could not join us today. Uh, and we really wanted to get a review out of one of the biggest blockbuster films of the summer... In time for Memorial Day weekend. So uh, here we are today. Here we and are. Not only that, we just saw the film because uh, I missed my screening. It was during the day. It was 10 a.m. And yes. I have a full-time job. How about you? I missed, I missed my screening because I was in North Carolina. Mm, nice. Uh, so both of us missed our screenings. So we went to go see the movie on Thursday night. The first showing. How full was your theater, Jeff? It was packed. Oh, wow. Jam-packed. Yours was not? About, about, about 100 people in my theater. Really? Uh, Mine was yeah. completely packed. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we just came from seeing it. We're sitting down now to review the film on the Slash Filmcast. Uh, find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. You can also email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. So let's get right into it, Jeff. Here's our review of X-Men Apocalypse. I saw the end of the world. I could feel all this death. Gene, it was just a dream. You wander through the willows in the forest you were found. I've been called many things over many lifetimes. Trying to hide. Ra, Krishna, Yahweh. Ever since the world found out about mutants, there have been secret societies who see them as some kind of second coming or sign of God. They believe that tens of thousands of years ago, an ancient being was born the world's first mutant. You are all my children, and you're lost because you follow blind leaders. But I am here now. That was from the trailer of X-Men Apocalypse. It's out in theaters right now. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. With the emergence of the world's first mutant, Apocalypse, the X-Men must unite to defeat his extinction-level plan. This film uh, was directed by Brian Singer, uh, and it was written by Simon Kimberg, who's written a bunch of uh, X-Men films and done a bunch of work with uh, Brian Singer before. Uh, and it stars the younger X-Men, James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, Jennifer Lawrence, Nicholas Holt, uh, and Oscar Isaac as the villain Apocalypse in this movie. Yeah, so, none of those pesky old X-Men muddying things up. Agreed, agreed. So, uh, Jeff Kanata, there have been so many X-Men films over the course of the last decade. There's been a very wide spectrum in terms of the quality of these films. 
Yes, this uh, movie even comments on that. <laughs> that's right. Uh, on the one end, you have films like X3, and you have X-Men Origins Wolverine, which are pretty bad. And then on the other end, you, you see uh, these movies transcending uh, what the comic book genre can do uh, in movies like X2, and even X-Men Days of Future Past is a movie I really enjoyed. Uh, so it's been quite a while since X-Men, the first film, came out in 2000. Uh, and so my, my first question to you tonight, Jeff, is on what end of the spectrum do you think X-Men Apocalypse falls on? Is it one of the best films uh, that feature the X-Men or is it one of the worst? Well, I'll tell you, Dave, um, I had heard very bad things about this going on. Obviously, I hadn't seen any of the trailers, hadn't, you know, hadn't seen any, hadn't any firsthand accounts, but... Uh, People that I know that didn't miss their screenings like you and I, yeah. uh, I had heard uh, pretty negative reports. So they I think were I went very in, vicious, yeah. Yes. I yeah. think I went in with very low expectations. As did I. And uh, I had a really good time. I thought it was, I thought it was on the uh, upper end of the spectrum of, of X-Men movies. Oh, um, wow. okay. Yeah. And uh, I, it's interesting that you frame it that way with, with the number of X-Men movies because uh, we are in full – retcon mode now we we are in we are i don't even it is so much uh, an homage to the comics that we've now progressed to the point where just like the comics continuity is the enemy <laughs> <laughs> and we are we are retconning left and right i'm not sure which movies are canon and which aren't uh Things don't seem to make any sense. Which timeline are we on? I don't know. All these characters well, are being my, reintroduced. My understanding of it is that X-Men Days of Future Past basically reset the timeline. Right. Uh, so that essentially – Kind the, of? Well, well, actually, no. X-Men First Class reset the right. timeline and then X-Men Days of Future Past like steered it into a new – but again, kind, kind of, kind of, like mostly, yeah, mostly, but some kind of not. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a little muddy, you know, just like the comics. So very much in keeping with the uh, X universe and the comics is continuity is a bitch, and it it you know it people kind of ignore things conveniently when they need to, and 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 that's fine. Uh, but this movie, in a lot of ways, you know, it's very consciously it beats you over the head with the fact that we are in the eighties. We are in the 80s now, uh, and uh, just like the 80s, this this movie feels like a mixtape of uh, sort of the greatest hits of the X-Men. It, it is and, relentless about those 80s styles, like to the point of distraction, I would argue. Oh, I 100% agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is so on the nose of like, hey, remember the 80s? You know, it, I mean, <laughs> Nightcrawler is wearing Michael Jackson's jacket. Yeah, for, you know? for most of the film. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's not even the worst part. I mean, there's somebody plays Pac-Man in the movie. Gene uh, Gray's outfit throughout most of the film is very 80s-esque. Oh, all say. the characters' outfits are 80s-esque. But, I mean, I mean, it's like the most on-the-nose 80s references. You get Pac-Man. You get Knight Rider, you know, on the t- television. You get – you know, it's like you – know, we get – I don't even want to spoil it. There's yeah. a movie that they go to that's, uh, you know, definitive right. 80s movie. Uh it is uh, very on the nose in the 80s. But I, I bring that up to say that this movie feels like a mixtape that somebody might make me in the 80s of like the greatest hits of all the X-Men movies. And I think my biggest – well, not my biggest complaint, but a significant complaint for this movie is that it really feels like all those greatest hits played back again. You know, we get 
all these characters that we've seen in movie in the movies before doing pretty much the same stuff and the revelations about them are pretty much the same and you know but it's all played in a kind of new unique way and it comes together in its own version of all that stuff but there's nothing particularly revelatory about it it's it's like oh yeah we we know how all these characters have are related to each other and where their what their powers are and even surprising powers aren't surprising because we've seen them in other movies happen pretty much this way before and it, it's um it's strange that you know all these weird origin stories that we sort of need to get again like why why do we need to get this again this is not a reboot this is more of like a retconning it's 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 very odd and yet i kind of also feel as a marvel zombie from way back that it's a it's a little sad to me that i have the magic of just seeing these characters come to life in a authentic uh in a way that 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 respects the comics is no longer magical you know that's that's not enough anymore and it's kind of sad to me because the first X-Men movie, it was just amazing that it was happening and that right. these characters were actually on screen. And now we get like a Scott Summers who has his own origin story and his brother's there and you have Havoc and you know, we get all we get all these characters that you never I've never really seen on screen before. You know, some we a lot at, of them at this we stage, have at this stage in their development, yeah. Right. And even new characters, you know, and and fun characters that were kind of messed up in other movies are are done better <laughs> here. You know, it's like and yet that's just kind of not enough. Like I, I do think this movie is is pretty decent and maybe again because I had low expectations. I, I had a good time with it. I didn't think there was anything particularly bad compared with a lot of X-Men movies. But I also didn't think it was particularly special. Hmm. Uh, so my answer to the question of where on the X-Men spectrum this movie falls is right down the middle. I don't think it was one of the worst X-Men movies, uh, although it had several of the characteristics of some of the worst X-Men movies, namely how bloated it was and how much it tries to do. Uh, but it, there are moments of wonder in this film as well yeah. for me. you know, And there are some decent action scenes. Um, You're right about that bloated point, though. It's way too long. It's too long, and it tries to do too much, and they just cram all these characters in there. And as a result, some of the characters feel just completely wasted. I will say that the trailer indicates that Olivia Munn playing Psylocke is going to be in the film. Uh, And is it Psylocke or Psylocke? It's Psylocke. Psylocke. Apologies. And, there is uh, an E at the end because it's the British spelling. But there yes. you go. And uh, I, I just think she is completely wasted in this film. I mean, given so little to do, and that was a huge letdown because you know she's a relatively big star in the film world at this point, and uh, and a really cool X Men character. Yeah, and, and really, the, I love we learned nothing about her. I love Literally the design nothing. of her in this movie and the special effects around her in this movie uh, were, were pretty good. And so, you know, that's just one example of some of the problems playing this film is that you have characters who are introduced and given nothing to do and then they fight a little bit and then they go away somehow. And uh, that describes a lot of characters in the movie, unfortunately. Uh, I mentioned special effects just a few moments ago. And uh, I would say that some of the special effects in this film are embarrassingly bad. Uh, I don't know if you experience this as well. There's some great special effects, uh, a couple scenes that I thought, wow, that's impressive. And then a lot of scenes that I just it just looked unfinished. What did you think? 
I agree. Uh, there are a couple of shots in particular that looked really laughably bad. really horrible. Like yeah. you, you know, X Men Origins Wolverine kind of level of of bad in terms of special effects. Yeah, uh, and I I don't know what caused that. You know, I don't know if it was like a rush to get this out. I don't know if it was the talent of the people working on the special effects. Uh, we just have no idea what set of circumstances led to this output. But, you know, a lot of these movies use multiple special effects houses. And so some scenes look awesome and some scenes look terrible. And I think uh, that situation always comes down to time and money. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's really sad, too, because it, it does detract from the overall impact of the film. Uh, I would For say sure. the opening scene... Uh, the special effects are awful, like, like distractingly bad, and you can't focus on what's actually happening because you – like for me, I just couldn't believe a single thing that was on screen. It just looked like everything was in a computer. The the blend between you know live action and CG was just very poorly done, uh, and that describes many, many scenes in the film. So uh, a lot of problems there. I'm going to take a little side detour here, Jeff Kanata, and ask you if, uh, you know, this. we actually usually go to press screenings very often, so we don't see movies with Gen Pop yeah. uh, that often. And one of the things that I noticed uh, when I saw this movie at, uh, at opening night is there's apparently this trend now where uh, people try to make you feel good about going to the movies. And what I mean by that is, uh, I don't know about you, but before my film played, uh, there was a message from the the actress who played Storm in this yes. film uh, mm-hmm. saying, uh, hey, thanks so much for coming out to see the movie. We worked really hard on it. Alexandra Ship is the actress. Yeah. And uh, apparently with The Jungle Book, they did the same thing with Jon Favreau. And then after the movie, there was a stinger after the film, which we'll talk about in spoilers. But after the movie, this card flashed on the screen that said something like, uh, this movie was the result of 15,000 man hours of work and, uh, and hundreds of jobs resulted from this movie. Uh, and these kind of subliminal and not so subliminal messages trying to make you feel good about going to the theater. Uh, did you experience this at your theater as well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, all those things that you you mentioned. Uh, I don't know. You kind of bring it up, I think, and it, it, it sounds like you feel like there's – a sinister overtones here. No, not at all. I, 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 I guess that, I just I, think that the, it, we're in a situation now where it's getting harder and harder to get people to turn out to the movie theater. And yeah. one of the tactics they're trying is, hey, let's actually just flat out thank people for going to the movies. Which, I think that's uh, – of all the tactics they could employ, I think that's the best one. Yeah. I, I think it's nice. It, it feels a little heartfelt and uh, human, <laughs> you know? I think so as well. I think they could do more – like – uh, you, you know, I wonder um, if they could do more in terms of like uh, like kind of special features kind of thing, you know? Mm. Uh, I, I wonder if there is some potential for, you know, like imagine, you, you know, like HBO, when you watch Game of Thrones, they have this inside the episode thing yeah. after the show. And I wonder uh, if there's a world in the future where after the credits roll, there's this kind of, you know, inside the episode document or inside the movie documentary or something. Uh Kind of bonus features, you know, like the director getting out and thanking me for going to the theater. I, I don't really feel like that. <laughs> that is not a draw for me. I'm not going to say, oh, I need to go see Star Trek Beyond so Justin Lin can thank me. I can't just wait for it to come on video on demand, you know? No, uh, but I, I, I don't 
I don't think it's quite as overt as you're making it as far as like, well, here's a way we can get people to come to the theater. I think it's more about – I think it – I honestly – maybe I'm a rube, but I feel like it's more genuine than that. I feel like it is actually about showing appreciation to the audience and having a little positivity uh, you know, injected into the experience can't hurt. Uh, I, I don't know if it's it's I don't think they view it as a genuine tactic to get you in seats. Hmm. Yeah, but maybe I, I'm wrong. I, I guess, but I guess what I'm saying is maybe they should. You know, like <laughs> maybe, maybe they, they should, should start thinking about that. Well, if you have a movie that is two and a half hours like this one, I don't think you know having more content at the end is going to help anybody make more money. <laughs> we mentioned, <laughs> yeah, good point, Jeff. We. We mentioned uh, you know, some of the new characters being given short shrift in this film. Let's talk about some of the returning characters. I mean, what did you think of uh, actors like James McAvoy, Jennifer Lawrence, and uh, Michael Fassbender playing characters that we've come to know them as in the past few years? It's funny because uh, I think I mentioned this when we reviewed Days of Future Past. Is It's interesting how in the cinematic universe of the X-Men – uh, Mystique has become a major character. Mm-hmm. And I think that really is because they lucked out and managed to cast Jennifer Lawrence when she was on her way up. And she has become this massive movie star. And by virtue of her star power, I think that just elevated that character because they wanted to elevate that actor's presence in the cinematic universe. Um, and, and Mystique it, is not a major character in the comics? No, not mm-hmm. really. Um, I mean, uh, from time to time, she's important. But, you know, in this movie, she's played as like this icon of the mutant movement, you know, and she's the the biggest badass of the group. And she's going to be the one that will train everybody. And she's the one that, you know, it just seems like, (laughs) you know, she can take care of business. And it's like, well, she's just a shapeshifter. It's not like, you know, I don't know. A shapeshifter who knows martial arts, Jeffrey. I guess. I guess. It's also interesting, um, I, I guess, you know, when I'm thinking about what the behind-the-scenes negotiations of this movie must have been like, if you are a major Hollywood actor like Jennifer Lawrence and you have $100 million in the bank, you probably don't want to sit in a chair or a table for six hours getting blue makeup applied to you. Well, they uh, go to great lengths to explain why she's not in blue <laughs> makeup most of the movie. Yeah, she's not in blue makeup most of the movie. She appears in kind of human form. For most of the film, and they actually have a story point justifying it, which I thought yeah. was pretty funny. Um, but it's kind of an interesting way that real life business deal making, I feel like, must have informed the film to some degree. Right. Uh, so that that's fascinating to see. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think she does a, a good job. She probably has one of the best roles in this film, in particular. Yeah, uh, I agree. I think I actually think everybody does a good job, and it's certainly well cast across the board. I think. There, you know, there's a there's a lot of really solid actors here, uh, and uh, even the even the new additions. You know, Oscar Isaac is to choose scenery throughout, but you know, he's he delivers what is asked of him, and you know, I think that character of uh, the villain. You know, the X Men movies and even the comics to a certain extent uh, are really about the inner personal relations of the of the team. And, you know, the the heroes and villains are always a sort of a blurry line. Uh, and, and so an actual out-and-out villain is probably the least interesting player in that whole drama. Um, so it, that's such is the case here. I think that um, Apocalypse is sort of not very well-defined, doesn't – we're not really clear on what his intentions are. He, he kind of he wants to just – 
Because his name's Apocalypse, he wants to create an apocalypse, I guess? I guess he wants to destroy Some the world. Some men just want to watch the world burn, Jeff. Yeah, or in this case, float around as little particles in the air. Uh, yeah. There's not much burning as, as, as much as it's uh, particles <laughs> floating hither and, hither and yon. Yeah. I think uh, that there is some cool – you know, one of the things about this movie is it does a lot of really cool things. It introduces a lot of really cool concepts. And it doesn't pay off a lot of them, unfortunately. Some of the stuff around Apocalypse is actually pretty interesting. Uh, the idea that he might have inspired the Bible's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, I thought was pretty right. clever. Uh, and the way it depicts his abilities as, as merging uh, people with the matter around them, I, I just found to be very, very troubling and inherently <laughs> terrifying. Right. Well, yeah, and and I think the 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 central idea behind him is that he's got all these abilities because he started out as one guy, right? And he keeps getting additive. <laughs> he he's keeps like, transferring to new bodies, and yeah. for some he's reason, the, when he gets he, into the new body, he retains the ability from the old body. Right. His his actual mutant name should be Feature Creep. <laughs> that would be the coolest mutant name, Feature Creep. The way they handle Apocalypse, I think, is very bad. Like uh, overall, they introduce some cool concepts. Some of the special effects with him are pretty interesting and terrifying. But overall, the way they handle him is pretty bad. Like you said, Jeff, uh, his intentions aren't super clear. Uh, they bury Oscar Isaac underneath all this makeup. So what is even the point of getting Oscar Isaac in the first place? You, you know, there could have been anyone under there. Right? They really could have, yeah. Uh, and so it, it's a, a decent performance, but he's not given that much material to work with. And... Uh, I think, you know, the stakes are a bit too high. You know, we often uh, complain about the stakes not being high enough. I think the stakes are too high. You know, when you have... Yeah. It, it's... Uh, we've talked about uh, Beam in Sky many times. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a classic Beam in Sky situation where, hey, there's some kind of Beam in Sky or... Uh, if you have a situation where there's large beams of stuff or light in the air and the... The superheroes and supervillains are having some big confrontation in the remains of a city. That has just been done before, you know, yeah. and it's been done poorly and it's been done well. And we've seen it done several times already, and I don't think it adds really anything new. Uh, I think it, I think you kind of paint yourself into a corner, however, when you're the main title of your film and the main villain's name is apocalypse <laughs> you know you you kind of it's the Chekhov's gun of of titles <laughs> you know if it's you're gonna check apocalypse it's yep. Chekhov's apocalypse uh yeah i mean if, if you're calling your movie apocalypse i guess there's a pressure to make it feel like the stakes are the end of the world right so just stay um, tuned for the next x-men film x-men end of universe yeah exactly uh, i mean what you're saying jeff is they painted themselves into a corner when they chose to tell this particular story. <laughs> right. Yes. It's difficult to do a movie where the stakes are the end of the world and make it feel grounded enough to have an emotional impact. And, and to be honest with you, the Apocalypse is the least interesting part of this movie. And really, all he is there to do is be a MacGuffin to bring the characters we really care about together again and bounce them off of each other, right? He, he, his threat 
is sort of ancillary to what's really going on, which is like, is Magneto going to be good or bad again? Right. You know, are the X-Men going to reunite? Is there, you know, are, is Charles Xavier going to be just a professor or is he going to create a team of superheroes? You know, the, right. those are the questions that we want answered. And the reason that we have to get them answered is because there's this nebulous threat that's sort of happening. And I think the, you know, the best of these kinds of movies uh, aren't that the, the 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 central MacGuffin to get our characters to to you know jump into action is more interesting and more central to the themes of the movie itself. Yeah, I mean, just it's a the, tough thing to do. The though. whole uh, world destroying threat is very difficult to pull off well because you have uh, a situation that is inherently going to involve a crap ton of CG. That is probably going to look obviously CG. You yeah. where thousands of people are going to get killed. Think of you know the uh, what is it the world builder in Man of Steel. You know where yeah. all these thousands of people are dying, and you just don't. It's hard to really care about uh, what is actually going on when the the stakes are this big, and you have a villain this vague, and you have all this special effects stuff floating around that you know isn't real. You compare this to like the ending of Civil War, which I'm not going to say what it is, but I will say it's not an, an end of the world scenario. But you know? the difference it, is the difference in those movies is uh, the, what are the Avengers? The Avengers are a guy who, who can shoot laser beams out of his metal suit. Um, uh, you know, a dude who has a shield and can jump around and punch people. Uh, a dude with a hammer who can punch people. Uh, you know, th- these are not. Uh, yes, we've got the the vision now, and we've got you know characters that are a little more powerful. Scarlet Witch is a little more powerful in the in the Avengers universe. But you you contrast that with characters who, the moment you start talking through the ramifications of their powers, right? They're gods, and <laughs> th- it, it feels like well, there really would not be any way to stop that. Like the 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 implication of a Magneto or a Professor X or a Jean Grey is. It, like the the hoops you have to jump through to not have it scale up to that kind of insanity right. is is difficult. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's challenging to sustain that over the course of many films. And I think what we see here is that we've reached the limits of that in some ways. Right. I'm very curious how they're going to uh, continue the series if they do so. Uh, but there are certainly are plans for other movies in the X-Men universe. We'll talk a little bit about that in a bit. But, you know, Jeff, you were talking about nebulous threats. And uh, nebulous threats like apocalypse on the other side of the world threatening to kill you. And you know what they say about nebulous threats, Jeff? Can make it difficult to get a good night's sleep. Oh, gosh. That's the worst problem about nebulous threats is the sleep you lose. Agreed. Because of how nebulous they are. You wake up a zombie because of this vague thing hanging over you. Sense of foreboding all the time. You know what you need for foreboding? What do you need? Forebedding. Oh, that's and by four I mean excellent. That's and by pretty... excellent I mean inexpensive, and by inexpensive I mean easily accessible on the internet. Am I right, Dave Chen? That's right. By the transitive property, you're correct. Casper mattresses, guys. Uh, Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for the fraction of the price you'd get a normal mattress for. Uh, and one of the ways they do that is by delivering the mattress straight to you uh, at your home. And it comes in a really convenient box that uh, you just cut it open and then the mattress unfolds before you and boom, you have a high quality mattress that provides resilience and long lasting supportive comfort. Uh, but, you know, Jeff, you pointed out one of the best parts of Casper mattresses. 
They can often cost well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses are $500 for a twin-size mattress uh, or $950 for a king-size mattress. That it's is a, fraction a of the cost. pretty cheap price, Jeffrey Kadala. Yeah. Pretty cheap. Uh, not only that, Jeff, let's say you buy the mattress, you lug this thing into your house. Well, the real thing you want to do is you want to you want to make sure you've made the right choice. You don't want to you, you don't want to walk into a mattress store and lay on a mattress for two minutes and decide to spend thousands of dollars. That's what people do. That's what people have been doing for decades. Uh, how they've been buying mattresses. They've been waiting for President's Day or Memorial Day, like we're having now, for these mattress sales. They walk in. They're pressured by a salesman. They lie on a mattress for two minutes, and then they have to go home. And have that message for the rest of their lives? Yeah, seriously. So it can just be difficult to make a decision like that. Uh, but assuming you get the Casper mattress and you're not a huge fan of it, you can return it risk-free. Uh, you can sleep on it for 100 days. And uh, the delivery and return is incredibly painless. So, yeah, yeah. They, you don't have to package it up. They'll come and pick it up. It's yeah. completely free. A hundred days, that's pretty awesome. There's no reason not to get a Casper mattress by going to casper.com slash filmcast and using promo code filmcast because if you do what I just said, you get $50 off uh, your mattress purchase. And just by using are, our promo code? Yeah, seriously. It's that easy. Get $50 uh, towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash filmcast and using promo code filmcast. Uh, and yeah, that's all you got to do to get $50 off an already low price mattress. You know that when it comes time to buy a new mattress, uh, that's kind of when you need to decide what your podcast loyalty is. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that is the time true. when it, it are, is now an emotionally fraught decision. There are a few uh, times when, you, when you're starting a new website. Yeah, when, when you're, you're starting a new a website, when you need to buy stamps. Um, <laughs> that's, when you decide, that's when the rubber hits the road in terms of which, which uh, podcast you really enjoy. We hope that when you buy a mattress, you'll go to casper.com slash filmcast. And use promo code FilmCast because uh, Casper is a big supporter of us. And if you support them, you're supporting us too. So thanks to Casper for sponsoring this episode. Let's get to spoilers for X-Men Apocalypse starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret you want to be fooled. All right, so a bunch of things to talk about. Jeff, let's talk about so the uh, stinger at the end of the film. Okay. The very last scene. So uh, after the credits roll, uh, we see some men in black, some men dressed in suits walk in to the place where Wolverine was held. And they vacuum up all the bullets and they're collecting things. And uh, someone collects the Weapon X uh, blood from Wolverine and uh, puts it in a suitcase. The suitcase closes, and we have an ultra close up of the term Essex Corp ominously. Mm-hmm. So, what is Essex Corp, Jeffrey? Well, uh, it's a reference to Mr. Sinister, who is a big, uh, big X Men villain that's tied a little bit loosely to, uh, to Apocalypse. Uh, but he's responsible for a lot of stuff. He's a geneticist and having. Wolverine's blood would be a bad thing. He's the guy that cloned Wolverine into a lady and made X-23. Um, I, one of my favorite X-Men stories of all time when I was a kid, um, it's one of the stories that I love the most, was the Mutant Massacre. And he was sort of at the heart of the Mutant Massacre. This is the story that actually turned 
uh, Angel into Archangel, which we kind of see happen in this movie too. Um, and uh, all kinds of other crazy stuff happened in that. And I was, when I read that as a kid, I was like, oh my gosh, comics can do anything because it was just so daring and so crazy. So who knows what story that they're going toward. But if this is pointing to the Wolverine movie rather than the next X-Men movie, uh, I suspect it might be more to do with um, X-23. But he's also the guy – and this gets a little convoluted and crazy. But when Scott Summers first married who he thought was Jean Grey, it was actually a clone of Jean Grey named Madeline Pryor. While Jean Grey – see, Jean Grey died uh, – in comics and then she came back mysteriously and Scott was like, sweet, it's the chick I was in love with and he got, he married her. Well, it turned out that Jean was actually still at the bottom of the ocean and wrapped being protected by the Phoenix force. And, uh, Madeline Pryor was just a clone of Jean Grey created by Mr. Sinister so that she and Scott would bone down and have a baby that he believed would be the most powerful mutant ever. I have a feeling they're not going to cover all that in the movies. But <laughs> well, that's you know, the, uh, yeah, I don't think so. Either, a lot of speculation but... that there's going to be uh, the female Wolverine though in the next. Yeah, movie. I think that's probably what it's hinting at. Not at all those other crazy storylines, but the the X twenty three storyline because you know nothing Hollywood likes better than casting a young up and coming actress and uh, giving her giving Wolverine a little sidekick that can spin off into her own movies when. When old Hugh Jackman doesn't want to play Wolverine anymore. Yeah, and I think he has said the next Wolverine film will be his last one. Yeah, then you so, get your X twenty three going. Now you have a uh, uh, yeah, you snicked will live on because she can snicked up. She can, she only has two claws, not three, but you know hmm. she does her best. Uh, so were you surprised when Wolverine showed up? I don't think uh, had you heard before through the grapevine that he's going to be here. I hadn't heard before, but as soon as they were there and there was a thing and there was a noises in it, it, it was pretty obvious what was going to happen there. Did your audience um, go wild? Yes. Uh, Some... There's a lot of cheering in my audience. Actually, mm, nice. The guy directly behind me went ape shit <laughs> when, when Gene Gray went full Phoenix. Like eight, like standing up in his chair and whooping and hollering and going, yes, yes. It was, it was, I was embarrassed for <laughs> but, him. But, you know, that, that's, that's something great. that bothered me because, you know, wasn't she supposed to die and then come back? Uh, what? Like as the Phoenix, whereas in this movie, she kind of unleashes her powers and becomes the Phoenix. Well, she's least. always got the Phoenix force sort of hidden underneath the surface there. I see. So there's and, no uh, inconsistency yeah. with her unleashing well, her power again. It's consistently inconsistent. Let's All right, fair, fair enough. But speaking of that Jean Grey scene, you know, the thing that really uh, it irritated me a little bit is we were talking about stakes and how difficult they are to juggle. And when you have this character who has indeterminate, indefined, undefined powers, this guy can reshape matter. Right, that's right. what we've seen. He can do. Uh, he can uh, increase people's abilities. I think that's his main talent is that he's the sort of power amplifier right. guy. But he can also he, he, he can also freaking level. rearrange matter, Jeffrey. Okay, that's true too. That's pretty, and he seems to have lots of other abilities. He even comments on how he's got all these crazy ability talents or whatever he says. Um, yeah, and at the end he has like a sphere of energy around him for some reason. He can he can teleport. That's another thing he can do. Yeah, anyway, he can do all this crazy stuff, and then so it's hard to find a way to defeat him. And it turns out, Jeff, that the way to defeat him is 
You just have to tell Jean Grey to go do it. <laughs> that is, yeah, you got to really, because she, she's the most powerful mutant on the planet, bro. You could make an argument that, oh, hey, Magneto and Storm and Cyclops—they all helped a little bit, but really, it was Jean Grey. Jean Grey theoretically could have just taken that dude out. But didn't we see that a couple of times before? Like, hasn't Jean Grey been the key to? In yeah, the I, I guess in uh, like, X three, right? Yeah. Uh, also, end of X two, theoretically as well. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it was cool. I, I didn't. It's just like, it, like I said, it felt like a greatest hits album. Uh, it's like, oh yeah, okay, well that's that's how. Yeah, like Cerebro and Gene Gray killing a lot of things, and you know, and the movies have such a hard on for Cerebro. <laughs> I, I never remember in the comics Cerebro being such a big deal, but Jesus, every goddamn movie we got to spend an hour in Cerebro talking about how great Cerebro is. It really is annoying to me how much Cerebro is in the movies. You don't think it's an effective plot device, Jeffrey? I guess. I guess it makes sense that if you can connect your brain to every brain on the planet, it's got to be a plot point in every movie. But enough already with the Cere- Cerebro. How many times do we need to see him in Cerebro going, oh, no, I'm <laughs> – you know, it's like it's, – that's what I mean. Like I, everything in its – So Cerebro parts, has caused way more problems than it has solved yes! I think at this point. Yeah. Yes. I mean ne- need to remind you in X2, I think Cerebro is almost used to kill everyone on the planet, right? right? But still uh, still use that Cerebro because they're like <laughs> you know, jacking into people. But this is a pre-X2 timeline, Jeff. So they don't know how dangerous it is yet. So at least good point. it's somewhat plausible why they would still be using Cerebro. Very good point. Uh, so what else to talk about in this movie? Quicksilver. I mean, there's so many things. Quicksilver. Oh yeah. His, he gets another show piece. It's like, it's like, there's like a, you know, like again, <laughs> there's gotta, you gotta have, it's like, it's a concert where you gotta have the right songs. <laughs> and the, the Quicksilver song is like the, the drummer getting a solo. At yeah. The, at the concert. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's like they, I think they blew the entire special effects budget on that one scene. Because and it's a fun scene. Again, very fun scene. Although, I don't know why running fast means you can tuck a human person under each arm and run with them. Um, <laughs> that seems like it would be very heavy and difficult to do. Uh, or just cat- throw a person like they weigh nothing. I don't know how running fast I, I think I think that actually kind of might work in some ways. You know, that uh, – you know, like if you're uh, – Swinging a golf club fast enough at something, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's probably some kind of physics really? reasons why it might make sense. Okay, uh, I'll I, buy it. <laughs> I buy it because it's fun. Like, it, it, the way it happens is fun, and it's well executed scene. And this is an example of how uh, a scene with really excellent special effects, I would argue. Um, yeah, it, it, it was really special, uh, like very good special effects. If you, by the way, if you do major in physics, can you please explain to us if uh, the Quicksilver stuff? It has some basis in reality. I would be interested to know. I don't think it does. Email us at slash filmcast.gmail.com. Uh, I, I also want to say that uh, the Quicksilver stuff, I love the music integration as well. Yes. Uh, but again, greatest hits. It's like I saw this once before. Okay, it's, it's still fun. I'm still enjoying it. But yeah. It, yeah. They didn't, they didn't do anything new with the character, really. No. Uh, from you know, he comes back at the end to do an emotional tie-in with uh, Eric Lencher, but yes. not really. Uh, I, I just, like, I just love the conception and, and execution of that character, Jeff, because it's not just a dude that can move fast; it is a dude that perceives time differently than everyone else. You know what I'm saying? Right. 
Yeah. Uh, and I think just that's just really impressive the way they, they do it. So Yeah, and I thought the the last bit where he's like kinda kicking the shit out of Apocalypse and then Apocalypse is just sort of like I'll figure this out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can you know, telekinesis my way out of this mess. Yeah. He's like, I, I just gotta like slow it down and see where he's gonna be. <laughs> yeah. Hang on hang on a second, I'll get it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, that yeah. was that was cool. Uh, I loved the scene where um I mean, I thought the, all the stuff at the beginning was pretty good. I, I like the scene where uh, Magneto takes down an entire army with, you know, a locket. Okay, this is one of the like the consistent elements of this series that I'm a fan of is the idea that Magneto is one of the most powerful mutants. Yeah, and the, you you really get a sense of why he's the most powerful because with one piece of metal, he right. can lay waste to an entire army of dudes. Right, right? and kind of like he when he was in that jail and those guys. He had tiny little bits of lead that he pulled out, and then he killed everybody with those little beads of lead. You know, back yeah. when he was Ian McKellen. Yeah. Um, but he again, had even he had like arguably less metal than that in this uh, scene. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, and it was more poignant that he killed it with his little daughter's locket. Um, You're right about the greatest hits thing, though, Jeff. The question is, how many more times can we see a, uh, a sequence of events? Whereby Magneto has some humanity, loses it, and then gains it back again by the end of right. the film. <laughs> yes, that is the question. And, wh- and, and while doing that, is hovering in the air as little bits of shit are flying around him. <laughs> that, to me, honestly, is the biggest thing I need to veto in, in, in any future X Men movie. Like, there is nothing less compelling to me than Magneto sort of. Just chilling out in some sort of meditative state. Yeah, like what is he doing? You know, he's well, he's, just... his power has been amplified, so now he's all over the world deconstructing shit for right. some reason. Um, but like, what is his? <laughs> the thing that they don't ever really make clear is that it, you know, Apocalypse doesn't. At least they don't explicitly say that he has any kind of mind control abilities. He just presents like a, a compelling argument to people. You know, he like waltzes in and, yeah. and asks Psylocke to join him and then asks uh, Angel to join him and asks Storm to join him. He just kind of like goes, hey, guys, you want to be on the winning side? You know, want to be the cool – one of the cool kids? And they're, and they're all sort of down for it. He's not like coercing them into it, right? Uh, and so like what is – Eric? Eric's pissed off because his family got killed and he just wants to see the world burn. He just wants to destroy everything. Yeah. So his whole, his whole uh, deal – with Apocalypse is, thanks for the bonus to my power, now I get to destroy everything. Yes. that's You You just hit it right on the head, Jeff. I don't understand what's going on. I do. But, like, what's – then what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, then what? Now that the world is dead, <laughs> okay? Like, Well, what? they can rule over the debris, Jeff. Well, I guess. I guess. I mean, it was, I thought it was, it was really odd cool that- to see. I will say it was odd to see Eric in a normal life because I think uh, through most of the films, in general, we see him uh, trying to kill someone. Like he's trying to exact revenge in almost every single film that we see him in, right? Yes. So you know, I thought that was cool. I thought that was really neat. Although he's sort of living in the 1890s uh, with his family that you're rooting for, and and yet he's got like this kid in the 80s playing Pac-Man in his. His other kid. It's like he's a deadbeat dad, and we're sort of still rooting for him to hide away and be. I don't yeah. Know. Why, why, why doesn't he get together with a kid who's in America? Oh, wait. Actually. It's because he's a wanted criminal there. Oh, yeah. There's that. <laughs> uh, but uh, I did think the scene when he killed all those dudes was really effective. 
Right. Uh, and but it's like like we talked about, man. How many times do we need to see Eric Lyncher suffer a horrifying yeah. loss in these yeah. films? Right. Right. Uh, I, I don't know that I can take it anymore. I don't know because it's very painful. Michael Fassbender is a very good actor, you see. Um, <laughs> right. And he literally gets to destroy Auschwitz. <laughs> like, yeah. you literally see the Auschwitz get destroyed in this movie. One thing that I did like about this film was how it did refer back to X-Men First Class and, so, and, the, and the other X-Men films, right? He, I think Brian Singer is really proud of that opening sequence from the first X-Men movie because haven't, haven't we seen flashbacks to Eric's the, – the Auschwitz scene from the very first movie like – Three or four times now? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or at least it feels that way. But, I, I mean, Jeff, that movie scene did set the tone for a lot of superhero films that would follow. It grounded uh, the fantastical in reality and in horrifying reality, too. Yeah. And, it's a good scene. Uh, it, it, it's a great, effective scene, and it showed, like, hey, this is not the kind of campy, cheesy comic book right. superhero films that we've seen in, in the past. This is something different. We're going to make you feel something when you watch these movies. Right. And, uh, and so I liked all the references back to the old stuff because it made it feel like it's all connected. And in general, uh, I think it worked. I, th- I think you really get a sense of, man, they really have built something pretty amazing. And there have been some highs and lows. You mm-hmm. know, there's been some really good films and some really awful films. But overall, it's pretty impressive what they've been able to accomplish. Yeah, for the and, number of characters that they're juggling and all the different stuff that's happened, uh, I think that, uh, like you said, I, I think this is a solid movie. I, I, I think this is sort of right in the middle of the of the pack. Uh, I would I would put it co- closer to the good side than the bad side because the bad side is so low uh, in this particular <laughs> series, and and this is pretty pretty you know, watchable movie. It's just not anything particularly special. And that's, that's my only gripe is that it's, it's fine. It's fine. But, but comparing it to civil war, for example, and what the mainline Marvel studios movies are doing, uh, just sort of average Marvel studios movies. I, I don't have as much fun in this, in this series as I do in, in any of those movies, really. Yeah, I mean, I was just talking with uh, my friend who I saw the film with about how if this had been released in a world where there was no DC and there was no Marvel, we'd probably be saying, wow, that was amazing, you know? Yeah, but- no, I, I, that's kind of what I was referencing earlier when I feel like it's almost sad that just the magic of having these characters faithfully represented on on screen is gone, and now that's not enough anymore, you know? And, and that makes me a little bit sad because I, there was a time when this would be unheard of to have this kind of, you know, representation of the X-Men on a, on a, in a movie. And yet now I just feel like, well, it's, it's not really great. It's just merely good. And, uh, you know, for so much of my youth, there was no such thing as a good superhero movie. Right. <laughs> uh, Burnetsky, 9292 in the chat room, points out the scene in the film when uh, Eric screams at the sky, is this what I am? Is this what you want? That's my uh, reinterpretation of Michael Fassbender's performance. Well done. Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and I, I do think Burnetsky points out uh, some pretty, a pretty solid point there, which is a lot of the dialogue in this film is pretty cringeworthy. You know, uh, some mm. of it's pretty rough. There's a scene in the helicopter when – uh, Jean Grey is talking with Cyclops, and uh, Jean Grey is like, y- "Your brother thought, you, you know, you would make a difference in the world, yeah. maybe even change the world." And he says, "Like, 
how do you know what my brother thought? Oh, really? The person you already know she's a psychic. You yeah, know, exactly. Like, yeah. And then she's like, I know what everybody thinks. Uh, it's like, oh, come on. That's just kind of the dialogue. The uh, story itself, overall, I thought was was pretty good, with the exception of the villain. And I gotta say this, Jeff, and I want to hear what you think about this. Uh, this makes me really scared how they're going to handle Thanos in the Marvel universe, right? Like, yeah, he's under layers of makeup. It's it's a dude who's you know Thanos is purple, I think, not blue. Right. But it's a it's a very well respected actor under these layers of makeup who's theoretically all powerful, right. um, who has inde- indeterminate powers. Like, what do you what do you think they're going to do? Like, how how can they execute Thanos well? Especially because up until now, Thanos in the Marvel universe hasn't been particularly compelling. I'm hoping that they really double down on his sort of love affair with death, with Lady Death. I think that would be a really interesting concept, and it's an interesting concept in the comics, and it kind of humanizes him in an odd way. Um, but it is, it, is, it is a challenge, and I think anytime you get to this sort of galactic level, this, the, the cosmic side of the Marvel Universe, uh, it does have that blue light in the sky problem where it just stuff becomes Abstract. really unspecific. Yeah. Yeah, unspecific, abstract. Yes, it just it just becomes energy and power and people going, Ugh! you know, it's like it's not it's not relatable and it and it I don't think translates as well to the big screen as you know something on along the scale of of a civil war where you know these human beings are passionately fighting for what they believe in. Um, yeah, but you're again. I don't even think you're pointing to a problem in the execution of the film so much as the inherent storyline of the film yeah right? uh, and yes. that when, when you have powers this big it can be difficult to make it feel relevant and it can be difficult to visually represent them too you, right. you know at the end of the film it, it's a pretty silly scene uh, i thought where a giant apocalypse is fighting uh little james mcavoy in the xavier house right uh, in his mind in, in his their mind minds. right and yeah. so that's their way of visually representing what's going on in their minds right. I thought it looked pretty silly. I don't think it really worked for me, but I appreciated that, man, that is difficult to do. Like, I, you know, if you ask me to come up with a solution of how to represent these two people fighting in a way that's compelling, it yeah. would be very challenging for me to come up with something. And so, hey, having them kind of have a really actual physical fist fight, I, you know, that's as good as any other way. I, I mean, <laughs> when you think of other ways of doing it, it's like uh, I think of – like Dark City, you know, the end of Dark City where there's the two guys with the mental powers and there's just like waves of mental powers going at each other, you know? Right. Like yeah. that's not super compelling either. So there's just – it's tough, man. It is tough to come up with uh, an interesting way of representing it and I don't envy them. And so I don't really fault them for it not coming, coming across super well at the end there. So Yeah, I, I think I, I more – I actually kind of dug that. I thought that was, it was clever and fun and I thought well, – a lot of that ending sequence really worked. My biggest problem is the basic setting of all around the world, there are structures being sort of decom, you know, break, broken down to their component parts by Magneto, who's in a meditative state, just doing that. And it's like that. I don't think I don't think that's particularly interesting. It's just not interesting. It's like it's such a it's such a vague yeah. end of the world threat that you I mean they literally have to cut to a scene of government officials in a room going well oh we there's a it's all going <laughs> to we're all going to die or oh thank god we all thank you Mr. President uh, the 
you know, our, our prayers, prayers were answered. We're like, what is that? It's so it's such a such an awkward, clumsy way to convey that. Uh, and and I I wish that that wasn't the way it was. Yeah. Uh, going back further in time in in the movie, uh, I think that there were some really interesting concepts introduced towards the beginning of the film, like seeing the Cyclops origin story. I've always mm-hmm. wondered what that's like. You know, uh, how yeah. did he develop his powers? And when he first started shooting lasers out of his eyes, what were the social implications of that? Like, how did yeah. he survive? Uh, he did a good job of making that manifest itself without him murdering anybody. Yeah, that was that was pretty well done. My my, the, my friend who I was with asked the question. Uh, well, <laughs> in the opening scene, he uh, shoots his lasers at a bathroom door. And uh, the kid behind it survives, but then later he later on he's melting like gigantic, you know, army grade metal vaults with his thing. And how does that all work? Yeah. Uh, and my and answer to that is, hey, his skills were still developing in the right. opening scenes, right? right? Maybe they weren't quite as strong or refined or consistent as they were later on in the film. And also, shut up. That's the answer <laughs> to that question. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Jeff, because you've never nitpicked one of these films in your whole life. <laughs> No, I, yeah, it, it does remind me of like how bad some of the special effects were. Like when he he like shoots open that tree, and the tree yeah. falls to the ground. It just it, looked it just looked bad. And the well, opening the opening scene with Apocalypse and and these uh, gigantic stone slabs sliding down this ramp at a hundred miles per hour. It it was terrible. Uh, you know, I did not yeah. believe it for a second. Uh, anyway, sorry, Jeff. What were you I say? thought the uh, sequence w- with the 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 German uh, ring fighting with yeah. um, Angel and and Nightcrawler was really well done, and it it really looked like those wings were practical, um, which I give them credit for. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean the special effects were very inconsistent throughout the film. You know, sometimes very they were great so. and sometimes they were horrible, uh, and that was one of the scenes where they were great. Uh, it, it's freaking X Men Cage fight directed by Baz Luhrmann. Uh, and uh, it was awesome. The question for me is, how did they even get the mutants into the cage? Uh, yeah. Because I would think that that would be a complicated and tall order. But right. whatever. We try not to think too much about that. Uh, so, I want to talk a little bit about something you brought up earlier about um, Psylocke and how misused she is. Um, or just sort of underused and and really... She doesn't belong in this movie at all. Like it, it really just feels like we're throwing this character in this movie because it's a character that we own the rights to, and we can. It looks cool, and we know it can be cool, and let's do it. Um, rather than giving the character anything worthwhile to do whatsoever, uh, and and I and I think that's a shame because Psylocke's a really interesting character, and it one thing in particular didn't make any sense to me. Uh, you know, we have this sequence where. Uh, Apocalypse is going around and collecting his four horsemen, and every time he finds a new one, he sort of tur- you know turns them up to eleven, gives them a boost to their power, and they have a physical metamorphosis. Right. They evolve in some way, right? And in the comics, you have that exact thing that happened to Psylocke. Like she started out as Betsy Braddock, the, the Psylocke being this you know psychic, and but she was a very sort of conservatively dressed. She had this kind of billowy costume. She didn't really do anything badass. And then, the, and then, like in the early '90s, she got a redesign, and there was this metamorphosis. She went, and she turned into like the, you know, she had the the psi swords on her hands, and she turned into this like ninja character. 
So you have that opportunity, like based in the comics, to to throw another cool reference to people like me that know that stuff, and start her out being something very different from what Apocalypse turns her into. And they didn't. They just completely don't do that. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, they made her wear less clothing uh, to indicate the metamorphosis. But there's no. That was everybody else gets really cool changes, like metal wings and. And Eric Lyncher gets his whole suit back and Storm. By uh, the way, I love the fact there's literally a scene where (laughs) – there's literally in this movie a scene where uh, Magneto gets like a psychic phone call and and like walks (laughs) into another room and takes the phone call. And in the background of the entire scene, Apocalypse is like designing costumes. He's literally like yeah. costume designing. His He's team. like, I want your face to look like this, and it's let's hilarious. have the lines going like, here. <laughs> He's literally like changing the the shoulder of an, a costume. Like, oh yeah, I really dig that. That looks so sweet. And like, and, and Magneto gets a phone call and like moves over to the other side of the room. It's it's great. <laughs> it is pretty silly. Yeah, pretty silly. But I agree. Psylocke is uh, is wasted. Although at the end of the film, she does get to stare ominously at our main characters as she walks away uh, engulfed in flames. And uh, yeah. we have a feeling that she might be coming back for a future film, Jeffrey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't count her out. Yep. Don't count her out. Uh, try to count her at all. Uh, I appreciated what they tried to do with the final scene in terms of the fight choreography, you know, they split the, uh, X-Men up. I almost said they split the Avengers up. They split the X-Men up according to, uh, people whose abilities roughly might match each other. Yeah. And, uh, that, that was kind of cool, you know, but you compare that to the airport scene from, uh, civil war. And I just thought that the latter was far better executed, no, no comparison, grander in scope. And the special effects just look better. The abilities, you know, they, they put a lot of thought into how would these abilities interact with each other and, uh, where these people will be located in space near each other. So, yeah, I think that, that airport sequence in the civil war is wildly entertaining. You're laughing and cheering and thrilled and amazed by the, the, the cleverness of, of what's going on. <laughs> what happens at the end of this movie is everybody shoots their energy beams at the guy and his energy beams are blocking their energy beams until the lady with the biggest energy beams stops <laughs> preventing her energy beams from coming out of her. And then the biggest energy beams get the guy, you know, it's, it's a little different. Yeah. You know? And then at the end, Magneto throws down these steel beams in front of the dude in an X formation. Yeah. You know, rather than throw them into the dude. Throw them yeah. in front of the dude. Block that guy. Yeah, uh, anyway. <laughs> Block that guy. We, we joke because we love. I mean, overall, it, you're, you're describing it in very negative terms, but... Uh, Am I? I, I'm the <laughs> one, I feel like I liked it even more than you did. I, I really am shocked that people are hating on this movie because it's, it's not bad. It, it yeah, is, exactly. That's, that's my feeling. It's not horrible coming out of it. Yeah. And I know that doesn't sound like, tall, like uh, high praise, but based on the reviews I've seen... Right. It is high praise, you know. Uh, so, any other thoughts, Jeff? Any any other topics we wish to discuss uh, about? Oh this man, um, the I. What did you think of the like the total rip on X three in the context of the movie? Come, walking out of Return of the Jedi and saying, you know, the third ones are always terrible. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was very clever, and 
I'm surprised that Fox let them get it in there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I guess Brian Singer has earned enough credit with X-Men Days of Future Past. Mm-hmm. And the movie did very well. And uh, I, for those who don't know the backstory, uh, they got completely screwed out of the story they wanted to tell for X3. You know, Brett Ratner directed it. But I don't even think it was Brett Ratner's fault that that movie wasn't very good. It's felt to me, without knowing the full extent of the facts, it felt to me like the result of a bunch of studio meddling that that resulted in a, in a movie that was was pretty bad and overstuffed and bloated. So then, you know, Brian Singer left the series, came back, and did a pretty good job with that film, uh, X Men: Days of Future Past. And then now this one, he's done a decent job as well. Um, so it was a nice little jab at uh, yeah. at X Three, I think. I mean, and arguably. Arguably, Jeff, it was a self-deprecating jab because this is technically the third film that features the young X-Men. Right? That's a good point, too. Yeah. So maybe he good was saying, point. like, this movie is not going to be good, which in some ways is true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in other ways, it's actually pretty entertaining. Uh, I yeah. had a decent – I was never bored. I right. had a decent time. And Although I have uh, to say the, the kid next to me, there was a, it was a packed theater, as I said. Packed. Uh, no buffer seats to be found in the entire place. And uh, there was a kid sitting next to me uh, who, I don't know, was probably 18. And uh, halfway through the movie, he started meticulously removing the wrapper from his bottle of water. <laughs> like full attention on the yeah. wrapper and getting it off of the bottle. And I felt like asking him if he just completely lost interest in this movie. <laughs> you should have just asked him straight up. Yeah, I was like, are you just done? Are you just done (laughs) watching this? Um, I was very surprised. But the guy behind me who leapt from his chair when Jean Grey unleashed the Phoenix Force, uh, he leapt from his chair going, yes, yes. Uh, He, he, I think, uh, was less interested in his water bottle. I think overall uh, my problem with this film is it, it proves that sometimes more is less. Yeah, you know? and yeah. what I mean by that is, you know, more characters, more powers, more scope, more stakes. You compare the opening scene of this film with the opening of X Two, which takes place in one building, and there's only maybe ten characters or ten, you know, actual actors or stunt doubles in that yeah. scene, where Nightcrawler is invading the White House, and man, that is still one of the best opening action scenes of any comic book movie, in my opinion. I mean, just really well executed. And we had never seen the Nightcrawler transportation effect prior to that, Mm -hmm. and certainly hadn't seen it rendered that well, anything like that, like that effectively on screen until that point. And so I just really love that scene. And you compare that scene with the opening scene of this film, which has a thousand people, you know, and it's on this huge grand scale and horrible CG and the difference could not be more stark. Yeah. Uh, and so sometimes more is less. And uh, this, this series has ballooned beyond uh, control. And I think uh, overall it wasn't bad. There was a lot of great things, great performances. But uh, if they want to make a good X-Men film, I think they've really got to scale it down in terms of the ambitions. I've always felt like the missed opportunity in – Re-examining the origins of of the the first team, uh, you know, first class, which is really the the 
the comic book that they did a few years ago called X-Men First Class uh, did this, which was, you know, examine that original team in the comics, which was Cyclops, Ms. Marvel, Iceman, Beast, Angel. Uh, that was the that was the team, right? And in those days, it it really felt to me, and and maybe uh, I'm misremembering this, but it really felt to me like those were the only students. You know, every time we visit Xavier's school, it's like teeming with hundreds of kids. It seems like, or at yeah. least dozens of kids, right? And I always felt like it would be more much more interesting is if Xavier's school had like five kids, and it was his only class. Like he taught a class, and it was these kids, and that was that was the entire makeup of the school for a few years because that was the first team of, of kids. And that was all he, he had the resources to be able to teach. And you had like hands on with each of these kids, very, you know, very, uh, uh, intensely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I just think that would be much more interesting to sort of, as you say, reduce the scale and make it a very personal story about a very small team that lays the groundwork for him being able to go all across the world, world and collect mutants, you know, with, of course, Cerebro, which is very integral <laughs> to the whole storytelling of the um, X-Men story. Uh, I haven't uh, gone that far in terms of imagining what might make for a better film, but I will say that every time I see Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters on screen, uh, the more I see it on screen, the less sense it makes to me as a concept. Yeah, <laughs> that you no. That you would put... All, all these kids, many of them prepubescent, in this one school where their powers, they can't even control them. You know, right. these people are, are like these kids are living WMDs that could go That's off true. at any moment. Teenage years, adolescence. It's not the most stable time in a person's life, no. <laughs> you know, and you're well, packing them all into this small space. Uh, it just feels like a lot of things. Could well, go that's wrong. what that's the way I always interpreted it. And again, I can be corrected because it's been a long time since I read those early stories. But the way I always interpreted it was that the school was a front for this like super team that he was putting together that was going to go around the world and actively intervene when mutants were in danger. They were they were going to save kids. They were going to. But the the school is a school, but it's also a front so that they can have these kids there to turn them into uh, basically a SWAT team to go in and protect a, a oppressed group of people, right? So it wasn't always about Xavier like founding a school and being a, a, a professor. It was about him creating this, this front for a, a, an awesome badass team. And, and I think that makes more sense if it's like five kids, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know that the front uh, plotline ever re- really was conveyed in the film series. Uh, right. Do you feel like it was? Not at all. Yeah, no. It was always like he's creating this school, which is sort of how it morphed in. What it morphed into in the comics, and maybe it always was. Maybe again, I'm misremembering. But the sense I had as a kid reading all those stories was that the the school wasn't. It wasn't about being a school. It was about that was the secret identity of the badass super team called the X-Men. Like their secret identity was they were just kids at a school. Right. Uh, that's interesting. And yeah, and, and then in the earlier X-Men films, we see some of the grown-up X-Men team members teaching classes and stuff. Which is where we got, like, the, that's the thing about starting the films, you know, 40 years into X-Men storytelling is because that's where the comics got to, right? right. But that first class idea, when 
when Stan Lee, you know, was first writing X-Men stories, it was Professor Xavier and his five students <laughs> who were, sa- you know, saving the world. Here's my question for you, Jeff. Uh, do you th- wish there was uh, an X-Men Apocalypse Jubilee cut? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the Jubilee cut was like showing more of the students. Was that from the other movies? No, I'm referring to the fact that there was a Rogue cut or a Rogue edition. Oh, where, right. Like they left out Rogue's whole thing. And There's apparently there was more movie. Jubilee that was not included in this film. She does have the most authentic costume in the entire <laughs> she has the cinematic costume universe. that is closest to uh, the original costume. And yeah. uh, it, it is also very 80s. Like if they, she had that costume in present day, I don't think it would make as much sense. Right. Well, that's because the character was invented in the 80s. Yeah, so, so it kind of was like, oh, man, wow, that 80s choice to make the movie then is really paying off for them. We never get to see Jubilee do any Jubilee stuff. Though. Yeah. Big disappointment. Big yeah. disappointment. So, uh, all right. Any other thoughts, Jeff? No. I, I Again, I'm, I'm curious to hear what Devinger thinks because um, – so much, so much hate for this movie, and I, I don't understand it. I, I'll I, bet money. I'm going to call it right now that he loved it. That's what I'm going to call. Okay, it. that's good. I, I I heard from friends that were saying it makes uh you know Batman v Superman look like a great movie, and mm. I I do not agree with that at all. I agree. I still think Batman v Superman is is much worse than this movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, you know, one other thing I wanted to mention. Uh, I I don't understand the decision to make it so that Moira McTaggart didn't have any of her memories. Although I guess that decision was made in a previous film. So that's correct. Yeah. It, was uh, it wasn't like they did it. They just came up with it in this film. They came up, right. they did that in X-Men first class. Right. Yes. But the reveal at the end when it, so, so I think I don't like that because it removes a lot of agency from her in this movie. You know, she's just basically fumbling around the whole time. Yeah. She doesn't Not, have much function in this movie until yeah. the end. That's for sure. And then there's this big reveal at the end where he gives her the memories back and, I can see how that would have been effective in a completely different film. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. If it was not X-Men yeah. Apocalypse, if it was X-Men something else, I can see how that m- moment would have been actually pretty moving. Mm-hmm. But because this movie just tried to do too many things, it uh, yeah. didn't really land that well. I would agree with that. Yeah, uh, I, I, I will say this movie did a, a decent job of juggling all these different characters and trying to give them all a little bit of time. And, uh, you know, it's funny how like all the same people that we've already seen be horrible are still like Colonel Stryker. It's like, yeah, no. Yeah. He, is he the only guy on the entire planet that just has a hard on for getting mutants? Like, you know, it, we've already seen him die. We, we saw, see him not be a problem at some point. Although, is that the same timeline? I don't know. It, it, all of it feels so strange. Like the Moyer McTaggart moment where it's like, oh, you have a son? Yeah, we remember that her son fucks everybody up for a while, but does he in this timeline? I don't know. Uh, Who's Moira McTaggart's son? Uh, it is um. Oh, what is his name? It begins with the P. He can manipulate time. What's his name? Somebody in the chat room knows. It's because of the P. Um, Proteus. Proteus. Yeah, Proteus. Anyway, I think that's gonna bring us into this review. Overall, not a bad film. We spent a lot of time picking on it because there were a lot of problems with it, but yeah. uh, I enjoyed myself. I did too. And I think the villain character is pretty bad, and that's yeah. like the biggest weakness. Mm-hmm. I think if they had chosen a different villain and a different central conflict and left everything else the same, like all the characters we know and love going through many of the same things, uh, I think it would have been a much better film. Yeah. But, um, Actually, they could have called this X-Men versus the Mummy. What? 
They could have rebooted. This is like a mummy reboot and an X Men reboot all at the same time. Oh, because it takes place in Egypt and all that stuff. Well, doesn't he like have the same powers as the mummy? Uh, I, don't, I don't know the mummy movies very well, but yeah, I feel yeah. like the mummy movies is like everything turns to sand, and I have the power of sand, and everything I do can mess you up with sand. It's no? not quite like this, Jeff. That's all, all I'll right. say. That's all I'll say. Anyway, uh, well, that's all for now uh, on the Slash Filmcast. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned to hear. I'll be reviewing next week. In the meantime. Jeff Kanata, where can we find more of your work on the internet? Well, I have several other shows you can listen to. Uh, in fact, if you want to check out me on video, why not check out a show called Tomorrow Daily on CNET? Uh, we got some fun stuff. We had a really fun episode today with a stand-up comic on the show. Uh, you can find that at TomorrowDaily.com. I do a video game show called DLC. You can find that at 5by5.tv slash DLC. And I also do a comedy science show with Anthony Carboni called We Have Concerns. It's only 20-minute episodes. They're pretty fun. You can find that at wehaveconcerns.com. Find all my stuff at davechen.me and uh, find my film, The Primary Instinct, at theprimaryinstinct.com or on Hulu right now if you're in the U.S. and subscribe to Hulu. Check it out there. Uh, And next week, we are going to review Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping. New universal comedy uh, directed by Akiva Schaefer and Jorma Tacone and starring Andy Samberg. Man, I want that to be good. I hope it's funny. Let's hope I really so. Want it Let's to hope be good. so. Thanks for tuning into the official podcast of Slashdown.com. We're out. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.